There's no business like show business, like no business I know. From the beautifully restored Brownwood Lyric Theater and revitalized downtown Brownwood, it's waxing lyrically. Toto, I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. The podcast devoted to and hosted by our own Lyric Theater players. For the people all said, sit down, sit down, you're rocking the boat. People all said, sit down, sit down, you're rocking the boat. And now here's your host for tonight's show, Paul Underwood. Welcome to the very first episode of a new podcast for the Brownwood Lyric Theater, Waxing Lyrically. And tonight, for the first show, it's only fitting that we turn to perhaps the guy that's been on the stage more than anybody else in Brownwood Lyric Theater history. You know, we've been around since about 2004 with performances. If you've been to a show, you've probably seen this great actor on stage. Welcome, Matthew McNeese. That's top billing. I, I'm, I'm going to struggle to live up to that, I fear, but we'll give it a shot. Now, let's get the boring part out of the way first. Let's and let's do it. talk about your education and what brought you to Brownwood. You are the director of the Honors Academy at Howard Payne. You know that building right there on Austin and Coggin with that statue that I think is still standing, right? Statue's still there. Still uh, standing, Douglas MacArthur. That's where Matthew applies his craft as a history and government professor. Um, he's actually chair of those two departments. And has your work on stage improved you as a professor? And then vice versa, has your work as a professor improved you on stage? Yeah, that's a good one. Um Maybe a little bit of both. Uh, I've been teaching longer than I've been back on the stage. I had done quite a bit of stage work growing up, um, involved in a, a very good and high-level high school drama program in Pflugerville, Texas. Mm-hmm. Um, but I hadn't done anything from high school graduation all the way through then to, to 2010 when I got on the lyric stage for the first time. So I've been teaching a little bit longer than that. Um, but my father growing up was a, a pastor, and so I think I've got a, a little bit of that storytelling gene as well. And so I think those things, those backgrounds and those experiences, both from my high school days and then also just, you know, the personal family stuff, um, I think helped me acclimate a little bit better to the classroom Mm -hmm. than maybe some other folks who who haven't had those experiences. Um, But at the same time, you know, I think of of the way I try and teach a history concept or a political theory of some sort, um, that can get dry real quick. That can get boring (laughs) real quick. It can get obtuse, even for me, you know, and that's, I got a PhD in this stuff, but even for me, it can get boring if you don't find that personal connection to things. And so I do think that thinking through characters and and the approach that you have to take on the stage of trying to find a way to make your character relatable to the people in the audience because you you want them to see the world the way you're seeing this little world that you've created that's what creates that empathy that really draws the audience in and and makes it a good show mm-hmm. you know you want to take the same approach as a teacher too you want to you want to try and get people thinking about 
the concepts or the stories the way you're thinking about them. And so you have to create that kind of emotional connection to them. So I do think there's a lot of overlap and I think there's definitely benefit in both directions. Do you break into a Teddy Roosevelt impersonation in class or do you Uh, do anything like that? Not very often. You know, one of my grad school professors uh, did an absolute dead ringer, Henry Kissinger. (laughs) He would just drop his voice down into the gutter and, and, you know, thicken it with that kind of German accent. And it was a wonderful Henry Kissinger. And I I can't do that. Every now and again, uh, if I'm in a, a, a class that calls for it. I can lapse into a little bit of a Bill Clinton, but usually I'll just try and throw it in, you know, just, just for a, just for a word or two, yeah. uh, just, just for a couple things. And then we'll move back on to something else. Cause if you overuse it, you know, it's, it's not really funny, but, um, if you, if you drop it in at the right time, I did not say that the way you thought I did. And then you move on. It's, it's a little bit funnier. You just kind of that, that hit and run humor. Oh, I love it. Um, Let's get to the theater stuff a little bit. I'm intrigued because I really had no idea about your high school theater experience there in Pflugerville. Just touch on maybe something that really lit that fire. I think I was, again, lucky with timing and circumstances. I was at Pflugerville High School the last class that there was only one high school in the district. And so a very large school, very large programs in all the different areas, but especially in the arts. And we had a a very high-level band, both marching band and concert band, Um, great, great instructors with that program. And then the same thing with some of the other arts, like the the theater arts program. And in both band and drama uh, at that school at that time, we had an interesting mix of teachers, which not knowing at the time that I was going to become a teacher myself, I look back on that and realize how lucky I was to have two very different styles of band directors and two very different styles of drama directors. Um, So with the drama directors, one was very good at teaching from the beginning with things. Um, Mm -hmm. She was the primary drama class director, and uh, she would take the lump of clay and mold you into an actor. Uh, (laughs) And so she was indispensable with that and her ability to take kind of those high-level acting concepts but make them easy for a teenager to understand was really terrific. And then our one-act play director was one who trusted you once you got on stage, gave you this idea. In fact, often he would say, I want this to be our opening picture for this scene. And at the end of the scene, I want everyone standing here. How you get from there to here is up to you and up to your character. Yeah, that sounds like a Larry Mathis type, sort of. Yeah, very much like what we have with the lyric, where we have a variety of different directors who are able to come in and and practice their particular skills and gifts as directors. And some will have a very full picture, and in their minds, they're going to see the whole movement during the scene, and that's the picture they want the audience to see. And others will take that approach of of kind of, I have these snapshots that I, I want us to get to this picture and that picture. But I want to see what you're going to do as an actor and the character that you develop. How do you feel like you should get from A to Z in this scene? Musicals in high school? Did a couple. Uh, and so, in fact, that's, that's kind of one of the funny things about how the world works. Uh, the first show I was in in high school was Annie. <laughs> and then the first musical, the first show I was in for the Brownwood Lyric was Annie. And so that kind of led to a funny story with uh, the director, Dr. Nancy Jo Humfeld of The Lyric. She had cast me as Rooster in Annie back in 2010. Mm -hmm. And I went to my first uh, 
dance rehearsal with her. And now, she what was, did you play in Annie in high school? In in high school, and this is kind of where the punchline is oh, going. Okay. I'm sorry. You're guessing the you're guessing the setup <laughs> of the joke is the the beautiful part of it. I go to the first dance rehearsal with Dr. Humfeld, and we're starting to work through some of the dance moves, and I'm I'm struggling with it a little bit. This is you know again I said in high school I was in marching band, not in dance. Yeah. And so I you know I kind of laughed about it, and I told her I said, well now Dr. Humfeld, you know that when I was cast in Annie in high school, I went through the dance uh, rehearsal part of things before casting the dance audition. And after seeing that, they cast me as uh, FDR. <laughs> in the wheelchair. And put me in a wheelchair for the role. <laughs> and her face just got very blank for oh, a minute. And yeah. and then I think she realized I was joking a little bit. I, I've gotten better. Uh, but it's that's not the natural part of things, I think, for no, me on stage. For but, a lot of for a lot of guys, it's but, not. You yeah. know, that, that parallel though of of Annie being the first show I was in in high school and being then the first show um, the year that I had decided, you know, I really need to get back into this. And it turned out that Annie was going to be the show that the Brownwood Lyric was doing. And so sometimes the universe just kind of smiles at you. We had that in common because my first musical at Brownwood High School, whenever I was a, a junior at Brownwood High, was Fiddler on the Roof. My yeah. first lyric production was Fiddler, Fiddler on, the, on roof. the Roof. There you go. <laughs> and I probably, if they, had they not done Fiddler, I probably would not have got involved. Yeah. But I love that musical. I just love the story. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we've got that in common. How about that? I've got a list of the musicals and I think I've got all of these that you were in and you can help me afterwards. We'll talk a little bit about the plays that you were in. 2010, Annie, any big memories of that show? I know you got to do a lot of stuff with my wife on stage during that, played Miss Hannigan. Yeah. And so Rooster and Miss Hannigan are brother and sister in the show. And so Jill and I got to hang out backstage quite a bit because several of our scenes were together. And they're both sort of comic relief. Rooster's definitely comic relief. I mean, Miss Hannigan's a little bit the villain there, but they're both kind of comical, in, especially in their relationship together. And so we'd cut up backstage a lot. And that was a great introduction into the camaraderie of, uh, you know, the kind of community theater that, that the lyric represents. 2011. You were right back at that summer musical once again with My Fair Lady. Yeah, a lot of fun um, getting to work with uh, in several scenes. Uh, so I played Professor Henry Higgins, and Jeff Woods was Colonel Pickering, and uh, Jennifer Reeves was Eliza Doolittle. What a great—that is a great cast you know, right there. When, when I was on stage singing with those two, which we did in a couple of songs— I would have to stop sometimes during the rehearsals and kind of remind myself, I'm singing with two professional musicians, yeah. people who get paid to sing. And then in some other scenes, uh, Alfie Doolittle, Eliza's father, was played by Paul Dunn, and he's been paid to act. And so uh, <laughs> this just the the fun of being able to be around people like that who are, are using their professional skills uh, for the lyric stage was really awe-inspiring. So Annie Get Your Gun in 2012, of course, that was um, up against Annie, was played by Lee, no, Erksleben. Deanna Erksleben. Deanna yeah. Erksleben. So yes. actually my next door neighbor at the time. Okay, yeah. Yes, yeah, so that was a lot of fun. Uh, again, you get to work with your close friends, you get to work with some of your colleagues from, in, in this case, from Howard Payne. Uh, several folks from, from the university were also in that cast, and same kind of thing. You know, I, I'm singing in a quartet at one point with... Uh, Jeff Woods again, mm-hmm. Deanna Erksleben, who's a, a music teacher at Howard Payne, right. and then Greg Church, who's a music teacher at Howard Payne. <laughs> and they were, 
I wasn't singing the right note in the chord that we were singing, and they they named whatever the musical term for it was, and I just looked at them blankly and I said, "Guys, I've never taken music theory. I know, I know, (laughs) I'm the odd duck in this group right now, but I don't know what that means. I don't know. know. Just tell me what (laughs) note. Yeah, hum it for me, and I'll I'll hit it. So, all right. So we're we're gonna we'll stop there at 2012 because I want to go back just a little bit. So you're you. What made you, was it, was it because you were familiar with that Annie show? What made you kind of just take that chance? And cause you'd been off stage from 2010. When was the last time you were on stage? It would have been, uh, high school? 1998, the year I graduated high school. You didn't do anything at Howard Payne. Didn't do anything in college. Uh, and never had the, never had the itch in college. Not really, you know, every now and again, but in college, you're just tied up with so many other things and it just wasn't on my radar for whatever set of reasons. Um, But once we kind of resettled in in Brownwood, I had completed my PhD by 2010. And it was actually the summer before when you guys did Fiddler on the Roof. Mm. We had gone to see that. And you said uh, if Paul Underwood could do that by a guy. That was it. That was it. (laughs) Uh, You know, the the spotlight hit you just so. And but it was one of those things that that cast just visibly had fun. Oh, it was a yeah. And we had, you know, gotten to know several of the folks in town then who wound up being in that and so being able to talk then just on a personal level with folks about their experience with community theater and what this was like um and then to be able to see so many talented folks giving of their time and their their abilities in this way and giving back to the community in this way, but also doing it in a way that seemed fun and kind of fulfilled that artistic thing. Um, it was, it was the right time for me to get back involved. And it was at some point after that, that I had decided I was going to do whatever the next show was. And then it just happened to be Annie. Yeah. Okay. After Annie, get your gun in 12, we go to Wizard of Oz in 2013. I want to touch on just something right here because we recently lost a near and dear person to the lyric that played the wizard in that show, That's Wizard right. of Oz, Keith Taylor, uh, passed away. Any memories of, uh, of working with Keith? It was a lot of fun to work with him. Just such an affable guy. Um, he played, <laughs> played the part of the man behind the curtain yes. so well. <laughs> he did. Uh, and that even just in rehearsals, it was one of those things where, you know, he would do the great big bellowing voice. And then as maybe Dr. Humfeld, the director had stopped to address something else he would tell a little joke off to the side and he would just cut all of us up with laughter. Um, He had the hardest time getting the dog that played Toto to go into his little booth when, when he's supposed to be discovered. He, I think he did everything short of slathering himself up in bacon grease and, and it just never quite happened. And I, I think at least one of the shows we had to sort of ad lib uh, and, and your daughter who, who played, uh, you know, played Dorothy, I think once had to ad lib, what's that Toto? You want me to pull that curtain back? And so, you know, and of course, Keith's doing everything he could to get the dog to come over there, and it just wasn't going to happen. Yeah. Um, but you smile about it, you laugh about it, you move on. So how many shows have you worked with animals? Now, did you work with the animal and Annie? Did we do the live? The uh, there, yeah, there was a dog. I was never on stage with the dog at the same time, I don't think, okay. in Annie. But I do remember somebody had to ad-lib a line then when the dog wouldn't come to the policeman the way he was supposed to or come to Annie the way he was supposed to. Um, you know, animals can 
certainly be stubborn in that way. Yeah, it's always uh, good for a laugh to have that animal yeah. break character. Yeah, <laughs> yes, or in some cases not break character and do exactly what you expect animals would do. We we had a live goat for uh, Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, and all it had to do was walk from the right side of the stage to the left side of the stage, and every night it would you know, do something that goats naturally do several times a day, right in the yeah, middle of the stage. Yeah. And uh, it just, that was its moment in the sun, and, and <laughs> it was going to milk the spotlight for all it was worth. Oh, So uh, the wizard, uh, you were the... Cowardly lion. Yeah, yeah. Okay. In the world's hottest costume. Oh, my gosh. I get confused because my daughter did Wizard of Oz in their high school production right. where she played just the opposite. She played the Wicked Witch of the West. Right. Yeah. And I'm, I keep thinking of, uh, of Zach Webb as the cowardly lion. Yeah. But you were oh, the he cowardly, was terrific. Yeah, you were the cowardly lion in that lyric production of The Wizard of Oz in 2013. We go to 2014, and we've got the great music involved in the musical Anything Goes. Cole Porter. It's and hard to beat. This is the first one at the lyric stage. Talk about moving in and getting to work that stage for the first time. Sometimes we'll overly sentimentalize things, of course, but but sometimes it deserves it. Sometimes it deserves all the goosebumps it gets. Yeah. We were in a hundred year old building that had been silent for fifty. Wow. Uh, the, you know, the stage had 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 nothing to do with entertainment for fifty or more years, and we got to then reopen it in two thousand fourteen, and it. it I, if not exactly the 100-year anniversary of the building being built, it was close to it. And so those nice round numbers are, are kind of fun to think about. Absolutely. And so to be able to kind of bring the life back to that stage uh, and think about all the history that it would have had um, down to, uh, you know, Johnny Cash coming through Brownwood. And I don't think he was at the lyric stage, but you think it would have been a stage like that one. Right, right. Uh, and you think of all then the things that it would have seen in the World War One and World War Two eras, um, certainly World War Two when Camp Bowie was hopping and, mm. and all of the things that all the history that it would have seen, that it would have then kept quiet in its bones for that that 50 year time period until uh, the lyric folks got a hold of it and were able to renovate it and open it up for us to then put that show on in 2014 and you know the best story uh, that I heard in relation to it and, and you may have to get one of your other guests to, to give you more details about it but for the opening night gala which was a black tie event champagne toast outside before the show started in the whole nine yards mm-hmm. um, of course, that was a wonderful event for Brownwood, and I don't think Brownwood has seen anything like it in recent history before or since. Uh, and so that was a wonderful thing to be a part of. But we learned um, right before we started the show that night that one of the special guests that had been invited to come was a woman who'd grown up in Brownwood. And she had been alive and been a, a, a youth when the the Lyric was still a movie theater, when it was still open as a, as a theater. Yeah. And... What she said she appreciated about being invited back to the Black Tie Gala was that this was going to be the first time that she was able to walk in the front doors of the Lyric because she's black. Wow. And so when she was a child, she would have to take the outside stairs up to the balcony and sit in (laughs) that section. Mm. And so, and they had the nerve to tell us that before then we were supposed to go out on stage. (laughs) Hey, I'm a history teacher. I'm tearing up as I, you know, as I'm hearing all this, this story, but, um, but no, that was a great example though, of what a place like the Lyric Theater can provide to a community that just the physical space for it, you know, can really be a touchstone for a community. It's a beautiful building, a great 
you know, kind of throwback Art Deco marquee and and so many of those things. It's a great little space and, you know, we're, we're really lucky to have it. And we were all, I think, blessed to be able to be a part of kind of christening that and walking those boards for the first time yeah. once it reopened. Amazing. And we keep seeing improvement after improvement, whether it's with the the lighting, the, you know, the sound, and of course, you know, the dressing rooms. What were the dressing rooms like, Matt, for that first show? Uh, uh, a little frightful. Um, <laughs> I'll say, I, you know, I, I push six foot three and uh, in, in dress shoes with that little bit of a heel on it, you know, I definitely get to about that height. And the, the pass-through door from the stage into the side building used to be um, maybe 5'11". <laughs> And most nights, I would remember that, uh, but at least once per run of a show, I would forget it, and I'd, I'd try and go and make a quick you know, entrance or exit, knowing I'd have to make a quick change or something like that, and I would duck down to about 5'11 and a half, <laughs> and just get that very top part of your head, just the, the, the very crown of your head. I would oh, just boy. clock myself on that on, on a regular basis. Uh, we're a little bit spoiled in a good way for having seen the growth from kind of where it started to then what it is now, and to know that the plans are to kind of continue that and, and make that building continue to be kind of a living heartbeat for downtown and continue to make the improvements on it and, and hopefully expand it as time and opportunity allows. We're still going through your uh, prolific time on the stage <laughs> in musicals here, Matt McNeese, and I'm loving it. And I know our audience is loving these stories and, and so many people that you uh, got to meet and associate with and all these different, you know, it's, everyone is a family. Yeah, absolutely. 2015, Guys and Dolls. Yeah. Um, What's the first thing that comes to mind? Oh, the fedora. <laughs> I just, the, the costumes for that I, were fantastic and probably some of my favorite. Okay, that was a question for later. Your favorite costume, was it the guys and dolls Probably show? that. There yeah. was a gray suit that fit me like a glove. <laughs> uh, you know, it felt like the, the scene in Princess Bride where they asked, Fezzik where he got the cloak and he said it fits so nice he said I could keep it uh, I told our, our costumer Lori Arp that if that suit went missing they, they shouldn't ask me about it because uh, it was probably in my closet but for a guy who probably his favorite movie is The Godfather you, you get to dress up a little bit like Michael Corleone yeah. there so you did that look was very, nice you did look very suave and I know you're very fond of that photo of you in that fedora outside the yes. stage with the hat, hat pulled low. down just so the tie undone just a little bit Heather Nix who's a great photographer Photographer, uh, and has done a lot of, of work on the lyric stage. She and her husband Jeff both. Yeah, um, she was in that show, and and I had taken a, a cell phone picture of the the light kind of spilling out from the uh, the one little lamp above that door. Yeah, the on outside down, stage door. Yeah, there. on down to that stage door, and I had made a Facebook post about um, you know some line from a poem or something or other about how great things, a magical world lies beyond this door. Right. And she liked the way the light spilled. And she said, I have a great idea. I need you to stay in costume after the show tonight. And I want to try this. And so she took that picture and, you know, I, I, I don't know if it's part of the being an introvert or not, but I don't love having my picture taken. And she's had to do some of my headshots before for the program, so she knows that. Yeah, uh, She knew she was asking a, a big favor for me to pose for her. Um, but yeah, she made me look cool. And and so, yeah, I use that picture and reuse it as often as I can because yeah, I, I think is. I look cool in it. Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a good picture. Yeah. You brought up the playbills and the programs. Yeah. I happen to have one here, uh, Matt, and I turn to it, and 
has it become a running joke as far as uh, how your name is spelled in the playbills? Yeah, it's uh, <laughs> it can be a movable feast. <laughs> how many different ways have you seen it, or is it all just the same uh, way? Three or four, and sometimes in the same playbill. Uh, but you, you want to kind of get under Matt's uh, skin, you know? We're, we're we're rehearsing in some shows, and and we find out the playbills have come out, and it's Matthew McNeese, M C N E E S E. Now there is another McNeese that spells his name that way. Yeah, in yeah. But yours is the Mac, and then it's like the niece, like a niece, niece and, and nephew. nephew. Easy, yeah. easy. Yeah. You know, and it's one of those things. It's uh, <laughs> it would never bother me, except I know my mother is going to drive up from Pflugerville <laughs> to watch this show. My father will laugh about. It, but my mother will tisk tisk, and well, I don't know why they couldn't get it right. And I'll say, Mom, it's fine. It was a typo. It's you know yeah. a thousand different things going on, and one person trying to do all of that. And so it's <laughs> yeah, it's a little less me and a little more for my mother's sake. Or if you want to put it another way, I'll, I'll kind of hold my breath when the programs come out because I'll be imagining <laughs> what I'm going to hear from my mother <laughs> when she takes a look at it. All right, and you, and you talked about your favorite costume, probably being that three piece gray suit from Guys and Dolls. That was hard to beat that gets us to 2018 matt and i don't know i'm I'm not gonna say it for you but the other question was your least favorite costume well i will say (laughs) for joseph and the amazing technicolor dream coat the dream coat was amazing it it was uh i think it should have been in the playbill by itself it was about (laughs) a character unto its own uh, the only thing I could equate it to was growing up watching wrestling, and you watch the guys come out in the full-on, you know, feather and and sequin uh, robes, and they do kind of that slow turn kind of thing. I actually yeah. adopted a little bit of that into into my Joseph character while I, I was preening I with the coat fun, on. Yeah, I wasn't making but, fun of the costumes. I'm sure they were great, but it it's kind of a revealing costume. Well, and... there were definitely times in the yeah in that that uh, a, a little less costuming than I'm used to and and then I was probably most comfortable with but you know that coat was about a half a size too small and I didn't realize it really until because I didn't wear it a whole lot in the show but I didn't realize it until about halfway through our run and we had a few days off and and then we went back to the theater and and I noticed during our pickup rehearsal that I had just this horrific bruise along my right shoulder about two (laughs) inches down off the shoulder and it, it looked like a rope almost, you know, around my arm. And I couldn't for the life of me figure out what that was until then I went to put that coat back on and I realized that it was pinching right about there. And so I just had for the last four or five performances, just had to grit my teeth every time I had to put that coat back on (laughs) because it was, you know, magical. And I had to, I had to prance around in it a little bit and show it off. But, uh, it, it hurt like the Dickens actually to kind of move around in it. But you know, that, was kind of funny in that regard, but the cowardly lion suit was um, just <laughs> grotesquely hot. Mm. And in fact, I had to kind of fashion a uh, a cooling system for myself. I had found reusable ice packs and ordered them off the internet. Yeah, and would pin about six of them to wow. different parts of the inside of that costume uh, to try and, and stay a little bit cool during that show. How and, often did that one go to the dry cleaners? Just um, not as often as it I should just have. once after the first but, week. Yeah, yeah. I, I think Lori said that she did hang it inside out on her clothesline outside for a couple of days, try and let it air out. Mm. Uh, it was, you no know, pun intended for being the lion costume, it was a beast. The things we do for the stage. The things we do for our love of the show. Ring of Fire, the yeah. Johnny Cash show. I know you were excited about this coming to the lyric stage. Yeah. Uh, was it everything you thought it would be? It was 
a blast. It's more of a concert than anything else, really. The great thing about the way that show is constructed is that nobody tries to be Johnny Cash, which is great because nobody can be Johnny Cash. In fact, each of the characters in the show, their first line when they walked out on stage during the kind of the intro music is, hello, I'm Johnny Cash. Mm. Everybody says it once and then you go on and you tell the story. My maternal grandparents um, had played country and western music um, for most of their lives. My grandfather had even cut a demo recording once upon a time. And, and so all growing up, I was familiar with a little bit of that sound and a little bit of that world. And, uh, you know, they, they played in a square dance band for decades with a, a world-renowned fiddle player who, in fact, had a, a National Endowment for the Arts grant to teach fiddle playing. Mm. So that's kind of the stuff I grew up with uh, with my grandparents on my mother's side. And once I learned that this musical existed, uh, in fact, I, I think it may have been around the first show that I did with the lyric, I started bugging people about it and saying, I, I think this would be a lot of fun to do. I think it would it would sell well in the Brownwood market, but I think it would be really fun to do. And just kind of kept coming back to that. And, you know, it really did live up to it. The live band that we had for it was just fantastic. Uh, got a bunch of guys that could just flat out pick. And, you know, it was really fun to then hit your stride with that show and listen to them get into the songs and get into the music and, and everybody just kind of hitting their stride with that. And you can't do a show about Johnny Cash and singing some of the Johnny Cash songs without just having fun with it. Yeah. And so, you know, that one was very different, I think, in tone and tenor than some of the other shows we've done. There wasn't really a lick of drama to it, but right, right. Uh, other than some of the parts of, of the Johnny Cash story, but it was a, a whole lot of fun to do and just a blast then to get to work with people as they just really flashed their musical chops. Now, we'll talk about the uh, the straight plays and, you know, the, the comedies that we did on stage, and we've done quite a few of those together as well. Uh, but first, I've just got a few questions, and, and maybe some of these plays will come up in these questions. The role that got you most out of your comfort zone. Why don't we just stick mm. to the, maybe just go with the plays. I've got an answer that I would think you might say, okay. but maybe I'm wrong. So I'm looking, I've actually got a cheat sheet uh, of, okay. of the shows that I've done, and I'm kind of looking down through it. Um, maybe one that you really kind of struggled to find the character. Yeah, I could go a couple of different ways with that. The one that's probably most unlike me personally would have been uh, Jethro and Beverly there you Hillbillies. Go. <laughs> there you go. Uh, that, that one was definitely, uh, it's not possible to go too big with yeah, that. Yeah. It's not possible to be too hammy <laughs> with it. So it was a lot of fun to get, you know, that's just kind of like pure unrestrained id. Yeah. Uh, you just got to kind of let it all, let it all hang out there. But some of the others too, um, you know, I'm, I'm looking at Elephant Man and getting to play um, Dr. Treves in that. Is that one of the most proud roles yes. you've played? Because that was an amazing yes. play. Probably, now we've got these back-to-back here. This is funny because Elephant Man is probably one of the greatest things that we've ever seen on the lyric stage. Yeah. And then you mentioned Beverly Hillbillies, yeah. <laughs> which is actually the most attended. The highest grossing thing we've ever done. <laughs> Sold out every single show. Um <laughs> Yeah, and in fact, that that is kind of an interesting set of bookends to think about because, you know, we've shown the ability with the lyric to do something that is just a lot of silly fun, and there's not, you know, there's not a redeeming calorie in Beverly Hillbillies, (laughs) but that's what you need sometimes. Yeah, Uh, you know, a year or two before that, actually one year before that, we did Elephant Man, and that was nothing but um, heavy, Uh, a, a fantastic serious story based on a true story 
And the direction that, that Larry Mathis took in directing that, in making it very surreal. Yeah, there and, wasn't heavy makeup on the Elephant Man. If you're no, familiar with the movie, yeah. it was just all rivers. It was all rivers shot well, and, and what he would do to contort his body, alter his speech patterns, but not a lick of makeup, uh, no prostheses or anything like that. And then some of the other things that Larry chose to do with the set design— you know, I don't think we had any walls on the stage. No, I can't remember. Uh, we had furniture, and, and he would bathe certain parts of the stage in light. But then one of the other things he did is is cast three young women as kind of as the Furies. Um, yeah. They were called in the script the Pinheads, and they had a couple of lines, uh, but they were supposed to come in only a couple of different times to kind of represent the, the carnivalesque atmosphere and, and literally the carnival freak shows um, that had been part of the Elephant Man's story uh, during kind of the the early tragic years of his life. So they were in the script um, in a very literal way, and he made them out, you know, he read it as almost like a reference to like Greek drama, and that they were the kind of the Furies or the Muses, and that they were sort of part of the world that Merrick, the Elephant Man, had in his own mind, that yeah. they were part of the way he saw the world. And so they were on the stage, I think, the whole time. They were they were sort of ever-present on the stage. Yeah. And one of the coolest things I've I've been a part of on the stage was the way that we did the ending of that. I'm getting goosebumps. I'm recalling going to see it now, yeah. and it's all kind of coming back yeah. to me. Yeah. And, you know, the scene where he dies and then exits the stage, you've got to figure out a way to get him to physically, mechanically get him off the stage. And the way Larry played it was in very dim light on one side and in the other side that was supposed to be my office, my supervising doctor, who was Austin Bynum, uh, played that part, had come in and was reading the kind of the obituary uh, for Merrick. And, um, you know, you've had this big turnaround in, uh, at least in Treves's eyes, of, of seeing the elephant man as a man, um, and seeing him as a person and, and humanizing him by the end of the show. And that's not a realization that the doctor has on his own. That's something that Merrick forces on him. So it really gives Merrick that agency. It gives him that, you know, control of his own destiny really for the first time. Uh, and then he decides, Merrick does, to lay down to sleep knowing that it would crush his windpipe and he would die. And so again, he gets that choice to do that. So we had to get away though, to get him off the stage at the end. And as the obituary is being read in brighter light on one side of the stage, the three pinheads, the furies, the fates, whatever you want to call them, come down. And in a very balletic sort of way, they kind of raise him up off the bed and lead him off the stage. And instead of going just directly off to the wing, we arranged it to where they would walk in kind of a circle and get very, very close to center stage, which was where the light would spill over and was supposed to kind of represent, you know, the where my office stopped and something else, you know, in the scene began. Right. And the way that we then worked it, Rivers and I kind of did this naturally on our own. He would push the boundary of the edge of that light and get as close to it as he could without actually coming into that scene. And I got as close to the edge on the other side as I could without actually touching him. And I let him just kind of brush past me. Hmm. And it evoked what we wanted to, which was just that as the obituary was being read and, and the doctor, as, as Treves, was listening to this, he would have been imagining a better life, a better future for Merrick. And so hopefully that 
kind of representative, but it was very cool, very artistic, very figurative as opposed to literal. And yeah, there was just so much in that show to unpack that even those of us that were in it, uh, you know, I, I think I remember hearing from you after that, that, that you and Jill talked about it your whole drive back. We did. Yeah. Uh, yeah. out to your house. And you know, the funny thing about it is we actors kept talking about it too. Mm. And still, even to this day, sometimes we'll get together and we'll talk about something and bring up some memories from that. And we'll talk about interpretations. Did this mean that, or did it mean something else? Because there are a couple of different interpretations of some of the scenes in it and the way that we played some of the scenes in it. And so, you know, it was, it was big boy theater. Uh, It was a lot of fun to do. All I can add to that is, well, doggies (laughs) and again the good book ends with that because you know sometimes you need to eat the healthy food and sometimes you need the junk food i uh, so we were we were proud to sell out the theater for the for the beverly hillbillies every single show yeah (laughs) um you have played roles that people are very familiar with like you know your role in a few good men You, you don't tell people out in public oh i play kathy i play the the Tom Cruise right. role. Right. And you've played Jed Clampett, you've played Oscar Madison, all these characters that people, um, Felix Unger, all these characters that people are very familiar with. Talk about the challenge of playing kind of a well-known pop culture yeah. role model and how you have to resist. I mean, they don't come to watch you do a representation of right. what they're familiar with. Right. You know, and that's that's kind of the thing. I uh, I can mimic in some cases and, and do a couple of celebrity impressions, but not very well. And and that's not what people are hoping to come see. And so with the shows that we've done with the Lyric, um, you know, you got to kind of draw that fine line or thread that needle pretty well on some of that. Uh, if you think about a show like MASH, uh, there's definitely an aesthetic that people have in mind of, of what that television show looked like to them. Right. And so you have to kind of recreate that to a certain degree, even as the play, the stage play is very different from the television show and very different even from the movie in terms of the characters and, and some of the plot lines and things like that. Um, Beverly Hillbillies was kind of a composite, I think of three or four episodes of the Beverly Hillbillies that then all kind of got smushed together in, in that stage play. Right. Uh, and things like that. So you, you definitely want to have, a little bit of the the attitude or the the theme of a little bit of the picture of but you've got to kind of make it your own at the same time and you know as you say I I'm not Tom Cruise uh, for one I'm an awful lot taller than he is I think <laughs> uh, and so you want to do the scenes in A Few Good Men that hit the same notes as those classic things that, between Tom Cruise and Jack Nicholson. Ben Cox and I worked really hard on the courtroom scene to, to get the shouting at each other down just right. Yeah. But to do it in our own way so that it would hit the same, but it wouldn't be just a mimicry of the movie right. that everybody's already seen. Yeah. Or Guys and Dolls. Uh, you know, you, you look at the, uh, the, the two male leads in Guys and Dolls, and, you know, it's Marlon Brando and Frank Sinatra. Yeah. Uh, ben Sword and I were not going to be Marlon Brando and Frank Sinatra. Um, <laughs> but you try and bring a little bit of the same swagger or a little bit of the same silliness, depending on what the character is, what it calls for. But at the same time, you want to make it your own so that people know they're paying to see you live in this show and not just, you know, somebody trying to mimic what they saw on TV. Got it. Okay. Let's switch gears a little bit here, and let's talk about kind of community theater and the spirit of volunteerism. You know, as I was kind of preparing to interview you, I stumbled upon 
a TED Talk. Yep. Do you know what? It, I didn't even know really what a, any, anybody can do a TED Talk. Evidently. Right. Well, this is the uh, it's the director of a community theater in Florida. And he's standing up, and I just found this pretty poignant. And as we listen to this, it's about a minute and a half long. And he talks about all the different people that run his theater. And you're going to think of the same names that I do, and we'll talk about that afterwards. Virtually everyone you will ever meet that works in a community theater is a volunteer. Whether it be the Larry and Don on the Carpenters Club, whether it be the septuagenarian, uh, the septuagenarian usher helping you find your seat, the 12-year-old kid who works up in the spotlights hanging from the rafters. Even our actors and actresses are volunteers. Our actors and actresses do it simply because they love it. And they hold day jobs. They are nurses, and they are teachers, and they are plumbers, and they are roofers, and they do it simply because they love it. They don't get paid a bit. Even the woman who builds our costumes spends her days as a CrossFit instructor. I mean, she's ripped, and she's amazing, and she's fantastic. In fact, we're all amazing and fantastic. The people who are at our theater are black, we are white, we are gay, we are straight, we are liberal, we are conservative, um, we run the entire gamut, and you would think we couldn't even get along, but we are a family, and we love each other, and we are there for each other, and that in itself is pretty amazing. But what's more amazing than even that is that we as community theaters have a goal to carry that torch of that, of the, that was lit in 5th century BC and really serve our communities in a way that is substantive and strong. You know, the names had been changed to protect the innocent, I guess you could say. <laughs> right. But you could easily insert the likes of Jimmy Henry and Randy Harkey on that carpentry committee. Right. Um, Dale Wheelis isn't, isn't quite a septuagenarian just yet, but you can see Dale out there as the usher. And now the last I checked, Lori Arp, just she worked at Texas Bank and she didn't teach CrossFit. Um, but but I wouldn't know, put it past her. I, I think she probably could if she wanted to. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but just talk about that spirit of volunteerism that has to take place um, for all this to come off. Yeah. Well, there's there's something called the iceberg principle that, that says that whatever you see of a phenomenon is, is maybe 10% of something. And then there's 90% of it below the waterline that you don't even know is there. That is absolutely true in theater and especially so perhaps in community theater because of course in addition to the people who help build the set uh, the people who help take the pictures and put the programs together the people who are the stage managers uh, who help set the lights or the sound systems or then run the lights and the sound systems the directors um all the way to then the kind of the front of house folks that you see selling tickets, working the concession stand, all of those things, to then once the show is done, the folks who come in and clean up. Yeah. Um, all of those are volunteer level things, uh, as, as the clip said, to include those of us who are on the stage. And it's one of the things that I actually think is fun and important for shows that I'm not in. I'll oftentimes go up and help sell tickets or yeah. run concession stands for. And, uh, you know, you and Jill the exact same way. And I think that's a really important thing for us to be able to show is that, you know, 90% of it is stuff that you don't see. Yeah. You're there to see that polished 10% that gets put on stage. But for those of us who are working on the stage, we know there are probably three or four people behind the scenes for every one of us that's on stage that has done something important 
even down to the people who have given money to yeah. the lyric yeah. to make something like this happen. You know, there are three or four people behind the scenes that won't be in the programs, won't come out and take a bow, um, won't, you know, have their name printed in the playbill, uh, any of that kind of public recognition. And, you know, their love for this is in some ways even more, I think, than those of us who, who do the acting on the stage, because at least we do get that kind of public recognition when the lights go out and the curtain comes down and everybody cheers. Absolutely. There aren't a whole lot of other civic opportunities that you have where you can come together and, and collect so many kind of misfitting pieces together. Uh, and, and in community theater, there's no such thing as too awkward. Well, and, uh, that, and that goes right into my second question there, the kind of the follow-up on that. And you already alluded to it Um you know, just talking about the family, and here you've got you've got gay, straight, you've got liberal, you've got conservative. Um, all those bonds, none of those things really matter. You form a bond with that diverse group of people to right. achieve right. that goal. You know, and the 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 title of the show, "The Odd Couple," is a great one for this example because that's the whole point of community theater. You get the odd pieces together, and then we all fit together kind of like a puzzle. And you know, some of us are Oscars, and some of us are Felixes, and it all works together because to do community theater, you need all of those pieces. But besides that, when you come together and you do the show, you know, you're not Paul and I'm not Matthew. We are whoever our characters are. Yeah. And so that provides that kind of extra layer to things. And then when you scratch even a little bit further below that surface, as you and I have both experienced, um, it isn't even just you and you being in the show. It's your family supporting you yeah. being in the show. Oh, yeah, yeah. And so, you know, there's kind of a joke about the, the lyric Widows and Widowers Club. <laughs> and those of us whose spouses don't want to have anything to do with being on stage, as my wife does not ever want to be on stage <laughs> for any reason whatsoever, but her ability to, you know, provide assistance with running the ticket sales system. Yeah, yeah she is uh, the ticket sales system, basically. Yeah, and, you Lyric know, she just has member. that administrative mindset, and she's able to apply it in this way, um, you know, outside of her professional uh, role, um, outside of, you know, she used to be um, in emergency management for the city of Brownwood. And so, there, you know, there's a little bit of that same kind of administrative mindset that she's able to apply here in a very different setting in a volunteer way and give back to her community, even though she d doesn't want to be on stage ever for any reason. <laughs> okay. We're going to close it out. And this is something that I hope will be really a staple for every waxing lyrically podcast that we do, Matt. And that is, I want to close with uh, a dramatic reading. Now I've got quite a few scripts here of shows that we were involved in. We can go a lot of different ways. We can do it kind of like the Broadway mistcast where, <laughs> you know, we can we can bend some gender roles and maybe you can we can we can have some fun out of it. Or um, you know, I would really love to hear something from Elephant Man. We talked about how great Elephant Man yeah. was. So I've got some scripts here. I've got Beverly Hillbillies, Odd Couple, we've got MASH. Uh, what do you think that we should do for this dramatic reading? I could join well, in, or it may be something that you just want to do. Yeah, I've, I've actually got a short monologue from Elephant Man. Oh, great. Uh, and I think it's a really interesting uh, concept for this because, you know, one of the things you had said is let's try and find something that wasn't your lines to begin with. Uh, and so as I was kind of thinking through that, I stumbled across this in Elephant Man. And there's a scene early on in Elephant Man where my character, Dr. Treves, first sort of takes up the case of Merrick, the Elephant Man. And he's describing him at a medical conference. And he goes into vivid detail about all the deformities 
on his physical body, just, just describing the physical condition of his patient in a very detached and clinical way. Later, about halfway, maybe two-thirds of the way through the show, there's a dream sequence that Treves has, and it turns kind of into a nightmare sequence. And uh, he then is the body on display, and Merrick narrates about Dr. Treves. But the interesting thing about this is, of course, that, you know, as you'll kind of hear in this, there's not much about Treves that Merrick talks about in the physical. He's going to talk more about the emotional, the spiritual, the character uh, of the doctor. And so the, uh, the juxtaposition there is really interesting. And this was always one of my favorite scenes because Rivers Shotwell would go over and he would write himself instead of being hunched over mm-hmm. uh, as he did for the character of the Elephant Man. He would kind of slowly rise himself up and straighten himself out and present this in a very formal way, as, as if the elephant man was dreaming that he was doing this, even though it was supposed to be kind of a nightmare that Treves is having. And the three pinheads or furies or fates came down and actually manipulated my body as if I was a, a store mannequin during this scene and, and bent my arms in certain ways and tilted my head a certain way. And it was a, just a, a great scene to be a part of. And I was dead silent the whole scene. So this is a great opportunity for me to actually like you know have these fun lines, I think. All right, our first dramatic reading on waxing lyrically is a soliloquy from the stage play The Elephant Man. It's scene 18, entitled We're Dealing with an Epidemic. Listen as Matthew McNeese reads the part of John Merrick. The most striking feature about him, note, is the terrifyingly normal head. This allowed him to lie down normally and therefore to dream in the exclusive personal manner, without the weight of others' dreams accumulating to break his neck. From the brow projected a normal vision of benevolent enlightenment, what we believe to be a kind of self-mesmerized state. The mouth, deformed by satisfaction at being at the hub of the best of existent worlds, was rendered therefore utterly incapable of self-critical speech, thus of the ability to change." The heart showed signs of worry at this unchanging yet untenable state. The back was horribly stiff from being kept against a wall to face the discontent of a world ordered for his convenience. The surgeon's hands were well-developed and strong, capable of the most delicate carvings up for others' own good. Due also to the normal head, the right arm was of enormous power, but so incapable of the distinction between the assertion of authority and the charitable act of giving that it was often to be found disgustingly beating others for their own good. The left arm was slighter and fairer and may be seen in typical position, hand covering the genitals, which were treated as a sullen colony in constant need of restriction, governance, punishment for their own good. To add a further burden to his trouble, the wretched man, when a boy developed a disabling spiritual duality, therefore was unable to feel what others feel, nor reach harmony with them. He would thus be denied all means of escape from those he had tormented. Thank you, Matt McNeese, for joining us on our very first Waxing Lyrically. Thank you. Now we get to that part of the podcast where we welcome in Eric Evans, Executive Director of the Brownwood Lyric Theater. Did I say that correctly? Well, you're close. It's a managing director. Okay. Uh, So we're very close, but it's uh, similar, but not exactly the same. So Eric's here. He's going to pop in 
just about probably every show, just to kind of let us know what's going on, maybe in the community, if there's anything going on at the Lyric Theater, certainly, or, in, or just arts in general. We'd love to do that. And, you know, it's kind of amazing in Brownwood how much is actually going on. People don't actually have a good reference to know how much arts and music and that type of stuff is headed and doing its stuff in Brownwood. So. Well, now they do. They do. This is a way to get that information. So I was thinking, Eric, um, you need something, you know, majestic to in, to bring in your part of the podcast. <laughs> okay. So, you know, and we You're talked about, nervous. we talked about, you know, talk shows of yesteryear yes. a little earlier there in our conversation. So, I quickly crafted this wonderful little opening for your for your segment, Eric. Okay. And now, ladies and gentlemen, here's Eric. <laughs> so there you go. It's going to be your little theme song. Okay, that's and good. And you, you could hardly even tell the edit there, couldn't you? Barely. It's just uh, I replaced Johnny it's with very subtle Eric. Yes. Okay. All right, let's get to the point, because you're just meant to be kind of a five to ten minute segment of this podcast. Okay. Unless you want more. No, it's it's totally up to you. So okay. you kind of have a vision of what you're trying to accomplish, and so right. I can be pretty chatty. So you just tell me what you're looking for, and I'll try to unchat myself as I need to. So now this is your time during this uh, coronavirus, pandemic, whatever you want to call it, People have been missing the Brownwood Lyric Theater, and maybe they want to know what the heck is going on. At first, it, I wanted to kind of get stuff on a regular basis out there. So I listened, just kind of keep a presence in that side of the community. But then every time we would start, and I, I'll admit it, Paul, I have been uh, sometimes very paralyzed in trying to determine what we need to do. To what? You're not you're not alone because nobody knows. Well, and that I I, I have found now after several months that I'm not alone. That uh, it is we're in such a odd period of time when it comes to. And well, I think when we look back in history, we'll go, "What the heck were we doing? <laughs> why why did we do that?" You know, I honestly do believe that. But when you're in the middle of it, uh, you, you don't really know how everybody's taking it. Some people are losing their mind. Yeah. Some people uh, lose their mind for a couple of weeks and then they get it back and then right. they go, okay, I can, I can, I can function again. But when it comes to the lyric, um, I was really nervous about uh, how we would set down. Cause you know, when it, when we get ready to do a show, it, it doesn't happen like, okay, well, let's put a show on next week. Well, that you just, that's not how that works. Right. right. You've, you've got to assemble the people who are going to be the directors and the directors are going to be have, they have to have support help. Mm -hmm. That just does basic stuff behind the scenes. And then you've got to assemble a, a cast. Yeah, there yeah. has to be that ensemble. Then they have to rehearse. And, you know, even though we may look more professional than we think <laughs> up on the stage, <laughs> uh, these are all people who also have other jobs. Right. And so it's not like they just automatically take off two weeks that the performances are going to come. All of this takes planning and it takes preparation. And you're working with volunteers. Mm -hmm. All of the actors on our stage are volunteers. And so I kept thinking, we've got a whole slate of stuff out there. How can we get this accomplished? When we don't know if we can even get together right. for this stuff, yeah. and so all of that kind of coming together at one time has has left me in a place when I do my part of the leadership, and as a general, the board looks to Eric uh, as okay, get it out there. What can we accomplish? And then we'll tell you if we agree with you or not. That's kind of how that works, right? 
And so uh, we have been being pretty quiet, uh, and that has been relatively purposeful on my part. We had just cast Get Smart. Yes. I think it was really going to be a fun show. Uh, yes. Ryan Bailey would have, will make, hopefully, an excellent Maxwell Smart one of these days. And he's a, he, that's a name that people don't even know out there yeah. yet. They don't even realize that we've got some new talent, yeah. volunteer talent out there. That's... Those of you that go to a lot of lyric shows and maybe you get tired of seeing some of the same, <laughs> the some same of us people. guys. <laughs> well, Ryan Bailey is a fresh face that we are so glad to have. His family's opening up a business downtown too very that's near right the and his wife tommy mm-hmm. uh they've had a lot of experience in in volunteer theater and in some professional theater to you know in some of their past history but she's a great costumer she's going to be a great support help to Lori, who's kind of our theater costumer volunteer theater costumer in our first board meeting post pandemic the first thing we talked about was well, well, we'll push Get Smart back to the fall. It will be our fall play, and it's full speed ahead on Mamma Mia. We'll be all ready to do Mamma Mia <laughs> in July, you know, and, and that, that great musical with that, that, that great 70s ABBA music. I was even going to try to audition for that, That's Eric. Right. And, you could um, have been to Pierce Brosnan another show. That Well, there's probably, <laughs> you know... It, I will gladly yield to anybody with more talent than me, and it doesn't take much. No, but that's uh, – and I didn't mean – Pierce Brosnan in Mamma Mia wasn't actually the best person, but he was a good character. He just yeah. wasn't a great singer. Yeah. You're a much better singer than oh, Pierce Brosnan I was. I think, I think I've lost a little bit. But. but that is a good example. We were going to do that, mm-hmm. and we were prepared to do that, and uh, then we find ourselves now where we're just sitting again. All of these shows that were originally on the calendar, eventually, I think we'll still do those. Rumors, another great Neil Simon play that was on the docket for the latter part of the year. Do you foresee any problems with just doing those next year or the next or whatever? No, I think what we've actually, uh, what we officially have decided to do as a board is uh, we're going to push Mamma Mia to 2021 summer of 2021 Mm -hmm. and then we're going to go ahead and do uh, Beauty and the Beast next summer and we're going to do The Jungle Book those the kids the two Uh, kids programs we'll do both of those next summer and then we had added a new one this year that uh, we were very excited about uh, but we're going to put that next year too that's Grease yeah did you know Grease is the number one produced musical in the world is that right yeah i i did i i did not know this and frankly they are very proud of it those people who (laughs) allow you to put that on the air give you permission to do that you know there's a it costs thousands of dollars to get royalties for these shows that we do and we get the cheap end of that because we're a non-profit non-equity our our actors aren't Mm, aren't paid what uh yeah believe it or not (laughs) And rumors, you know, Neil Simon's, uh, he's one of the best writers out there. Oh, yeah. Uh, we've not done a lot of Neil Simon work, but every one that we've done, we did. Is it Barefoot in the Park of Neil Simon? It is. I think. So Barefoot in the Park we've done. And then when we did... Um, Odd Couple. The Odd Couple here last year. One of the best written oh my gosh. scripts I've ever been able to read through. So much fun. I was in that, and it was a challenge. It, it was a challenge. To but keep it conversational. Yes. Just the rapid fire back and forth yes. lines. A great writer. So uh, Rumors is one of those shows that's not as well known as something like The Odd Couple, but it's a great show. And frankly, Get Smart, it's going to be another, people are going to love this show. 
But Get Smart kind of falls into the line of maybe like a Beverly Hillbilly. Yeah, just that you've got to have just that campy name recognition. Uh, there you go. You know, nostalgia of your 60s and 70s. Go to those yes. sitcoms. Everybody knows what they're going to see before they come in. But uh, that just makes it great. It makes it a lot of fun. And Larry is beautiful at directing those kind of shows. Oh, yeah. Uh, our, still our most popular show ever was Beverly Hillbillies. Amazing. And we signed up. <laughs> we, but kind of, sometimes I'm a little embarrassed to say that out loud. But well, then again, I, I want to think of you know the, one of the greatest shows we did, The Elephant Man, that play, a beautiful <laughs> play. Amazing play. You know, yes. that everybody should have seen that show, but uh, good old Beverly Hillbillies. The Beverly Hillbillies <laughs> did it. That's right. I mean, we sold out. Show after show, had to add a show. Uh, <laughs> I remember. We've never added a show, except for that one. So we're going to plan for something for September. We've also got something planned for October. I think we're going to try to do Get Smart. We're going to plan to do that. And, yeah. Because it's going to take, the the show in September will not take as much rehearsal and it's one of those things that people will thoroughly enjoy. Be one of the most entertaining things I've ever seen. But it's just it's not going to take as much prep time, so I don't have to worry as much about getting actors together and getting people together and worry about all of the rehearsal that goes on. And I think it gives us time when we think about the COVID nineteen virus and what that is. It gives us time to kind of see how we're doing on that. Yeah. Uh, so then we're, we're going to plan on doing that, and we've got this children's thing that'll come after after that, and then Christmas time. I think we're going to try to plan on putting that out there right now. Well, Eric, we went through a lot on our first <laughs> visit there. Um, this is going to be a challenging edit job for me. So thank you for stopping in and being a part of the very first waxing lyrically. What do you think about that name, by the way? It's a so, little wordy, but if you go on to Apple Podcasts, we're the only waxing lyrically. That's right. Now, there's a wax lyrical. There's there's plenty of those, which would have been short, a little sweeter, but I don't want to get lost. So it's going to be waxing lyrically. So anybody that attends a uh, anything at the Lyric, you can go up there and tell them, hey, you got to listen to our podcast. That's and right. they won't get confused That's because right. there's only going to be one. That's right. Matter of fact, we're going to put it in our playbills. We're going to have it out there so people can get it. And um, you'll know about it. We'll even talk about it on the radio. So I told Carl Wayne that just the other day. All right. Thank you, Eric, for joining us. Appreciate you. Thanks for listening to Waxing Lyrically. Sponsored by the one and only Teddy's Brewhouse in downtown Bromwood. If you enjoyed our podcast, why not share it with a friend? This is your announcer, Kurt Schneider, wishing all Brownwood Lyric Theater lovers a great day. See you next time. <laughs>